Cemetery. Hi everyone and welcome to another Horror Homeroom Conversation. I'm Elizabeth Irwin. I'm Gwen Hoffman. I'm Dawn Keatley. And today we are diving into the 1989 classic Pet Cemetery. Famously panned by Variety for being undead schlock dulled by a slasher film mentality, Pet Cemetery remains one of the most divisive Stephen King film adaptations. In this episode, we are looking at how reaction to the movie's horror tropes infuriated critics while delighting audiences, and whether the movie's most famously shocking moments still hold up today. So stay tuned. So today's film, <laughs> Pet Cemetery, if you haven't seen it, again from 1989, is a film largely about death, about loss, about secrecy. So a family is just kind of coping with a variety of different deaths in the family. There's about five, six deaths that kind of unfold throughout their lives and how to handle it, if they can handle it. And they navigate using the pet cemetery, crossing boundaries of life and death, and whatever unfolds when you cross those boundaries. So can I just say something about the novel? Please do, because I don't think I've ever actually read it. Are you serious? <laughs> I'm totally serious. I mean, I've read it, but I don't remember reading it, like so many novels I've read <laughs> in my life. So, yeah, I guess I wasn't going to talk about the experience of reading the novel, but just that I was watching this documentary, which we've talked about, about the making of Pet Cemetery. And I think it was in there that I guess Stephen King wrote the novel in like the late 70s mm -hmm. and decided after consulting with his wife, Tabitha, that he wasn't going to publish it because it was too dark, mm -hmm. um, which I thought was very cool. And he put it in a drawer and only brought it back out again a couple of years later, I guess, because he was in some sort of contract dispute with Doubleday. They wanted a book from him. Pet Cemetery was the only book he had. So he gave it to them, even though he really didn't, he thought it was too dark. And it scared him. I guess it's like famous for being the novel that scared him the most that he wrote. Like, I watched that film, too, Unearthed mm -hmm. and Untold, and it was yeah. really talking about how it was so taboo to kill a child. Yes, it was the death of a child. And I think that, that was yeah. the thing that made yeah. it so... You, you couldn't do this. And I think that we're definitely going to have to unpack that at some point about how it was so taboo. I mean, the book came out in, what, 83? 83, mm -hmm. yeah. And then the film came out in 89, finally, yeah. because somebody was really, really pushing for it. Yeah, and still, I guess, I mean, how many films do show the death of a child, especially a toddler? I mean, I guess Gage was, what, like two? Yeah, yeah. Two, three. toddled in front of the truck. I mean, that is actually one of the most, I don't even know what the word is, chilling moments, horrifying. I guess it really is horrifying when he walks in front of that truck. I can, I can see why King felt that was it was too dark. They do take a lot of great pains to sort of emphasize how young Gage is, too. Like, yeah. I'm thinking, like, the car seat, and they keep calling him a baby. Yeah. And so I think... Give me the baby, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and so I wonder if the age of the child matters because I'm thinking of older children yeah. who are like eight or nine and whether our empathy decreases as the child ages because we don't really care about teenagers getting slashed. <laughs> At least I don't enjoy it. No, of course uh, not. But seeing a little toddler get run over, at yeah. least just seeing like the little bloody shoe, that does leave an impression. Yeah. Well, I think there was a lot of directorial choices and I think that came out in the documentary also too with Mary Lambert saying that she really wanted this this Miko kid because he was so good and so gifted. I know that they would have liked to have had twins. They might have liked to have had somebody a little bit older. And they even went to lengths to talk about making sure that they didn't 
scar him for life yeah. as mm-hmm. a child. Yeah. Actor. Yeah. So again, it kind of comes down to like in 1989 when they were making, well, before that, when they were making this film, what makes that so taboo? And where have we come from since then, too? And that's just going to be my thing because I love talking about children yeah. and evil children and, you know, how the child evolves to become evil. But in this case, he was complete and total innocent. Did you find yourself watching it and thinking about the parental responsibility element at all? Because yeah, I was, that was horrifying too. That's where I got yeah. like most of my reaction from because I as a child I didn't pick up on that at all. But rewatching it now I thought, you know, you've seen this this was coming. You knew that this yeah. child was going to be hurt eventually. Yeah. And like sort of looking at the action of these parents, I thought, wow, you guys are awful. Yeah. Like it's really hard for me to empathize with you. I mean, I guess the moment yeah. they moved into that house and you saw the truck, the visceral weight and speed of the truck driving by their house, I was like, build a damn fence. That's exactly <laughs> what I said. Yeah. You, you have money. Thing. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah Shut down the government. Me. Build a wall. <laughs> build a wall. <laughs> build a wall. <laughs> and it was, that was the only car that ever passed their gas truck, ever. And it was yeah. funny, too, because they talked about the people that lived in that area at that time period and seeing that gas truck coming around and around and around. But I didn't have that same experience. Like, I have zero maternal instinct. Zero. <laughs> so I never felt that the parents were culpable. In my opinion, they were trying to make this really good Americana life, trying to give him everything he could, flying kites with him. To me, the film was so much more about, A, men, and B, just death. Yeah. Period. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I felt that the parents themselves really tried to do a good job. And I think that it tries to show a lineage of parents trying to do a good job. But again, this kind of comes back to that documentary. I know that even the actors had said when it comes down to the death of Gage, they even had a hard time filming some of those death scenes. They had a hard time filming when he got hit by the truck. They had Mm -hmm. a hard hard time filming the funeral. The funeral, yeah. Mm -hmm. Just to back up a minute, though, it's interesting with all this talk about the taboo of the dead toddler and i do think it's important he is a cute blonde toddler and stephen king saying he didn't want to publish the book i mean the film was incredibly successful Mm -hmm. um and people went to see it it's it did amazingly in terms of sales and i guess the few king adaptations right before this had been kind of flops and this sort of put him back in hollywood's sights but people didn't seem to be put off by the what i think is like a really heavy preoccupation with death yeah, it's interesting to me, too, because I went back and I looked at how the movie was received by critics when it first came yeah. out, and they seemed to really dislike it. Why? I don't get that. I don't know either. I mean, I also looked at sort of the rankings of Stephen yeah. King films just to get a sense of where this sort of is situated. Mm-hmm. And people tend to put it like in the 16, 17, 18 category. And I was really surprised that it was that far back. Yeah, I think it's one of the better ones. Yeah. I think so, really too, do. but I will say, rewatching it now, I did not think it held up nearly as well. You're killing me. I know. So why, why, I know. why doesn't it rank? I mean, it seems to have everything. Like, I love the fact that it's filmed in Maine. Yes. They, like they that. did a fantastic job of directing. All of the actors are good, like, important themes. This this wasn't just a slasher. I can't believe Variety said it had a, quote, slasher mentality, because it didn't. <laughs> no, um, I don't see that either. I don't know. I mean, I guess for me, it's more it 
looking at it with like today's lens, I think it's like I hate to use the academic term. It's very problematic. I know I hate hate that word. Just sort of the way and I mean, we'll talk about it, but the way it depicts otherness, especially in relation to like disability, I think was really troubling. I know you're going to completely disagree with me. Yeah, we're going to take you out of this studio. It won't be the first time. I'm extremely interested in the quotes when Judd really talks about how a man's heart is stony. And what is that supposed to mean? They talk about how women are supposed to be known for secrecy. However, men, no, we've got this down. Because you ask a woman what a man's got in his heart, and she doesn't know. And how does that relate into this film? I mean, there is the larger story of of Rachel and Zelda. But outside of that, it's really about men and how they can keep these secrets. And... I just want to know what you guys think about men having stonier hearts. When Judd said that in the film, for me, that was kind of an off moment because Lewis, I mean, you can't really make these kinds of comparisons exactly, but doesn't he seem to be more affected by Gage's death in some ways, even than Rachel? I mean, and in part, that's because he has the horrible unbearable guilt of having been there and almost but not quite stopped him. And as we learn, Rachel has had, like, she's had struggles with death and taboo feelings about death. Yeah, I just didn't buy it. Like, the film didn't seem to illustrate to me the men have stonier hearts. See, when I think of that, I think about if I'm just going to, you know, from a, a growing standpoint, if I've got a stony kind of base, it's not fertile. I can't grow anything. It's not productive. Which is interesting because the path that these men continuously take throughout this film, you got Judd, you've got Lewis, you've even got the men before Judd and Lewis when they yeah. they talk about Timmy and they talk about everybody that preceded them. They continuously try these things with the pet cemetery and it doesn't work. And they think that they're so good at these secrets and they think that they're so good at, mm. at protecting people and taking care of people, but they're not. And I think that that's something that kind of rings true when we talk about death throughout the film is they think that they're taking care of people. They think that they're being productive. They're just not. So you interpreted the stony ground thing to mean nothing grows. It's kind of infertile. And I guess so I see how you're connecting that with the fact that, I mean, basically Lewis does the same thing three times. (laughs) It's like... Are you not learning? Pull yeah. me once. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that that's kind of a mark of the stoniness of, yeah. his, of, of him. Yeah, and that whole inheritance is male. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, Timmy and his father gets passed to Judd. Judd tries doing it with his dog. Lewis does it with Church and Gage and Rachel. It's this masculine, infertile, repetitive, pointless kind of activity. Yeah. And it's kind of an interesting contrast against what's happening with the daughter and like the very specifically feminine ability to see because she has the clearest sense of what's going on. Ellie, yeah, she She knows. If anything, when it comes to talking about death, I actually think that the most healthy person in the whole discussion is Rachel. And I I think Hmm. Rachel, when she was, what was it, eight or 10 years old dealing with Zelda, she was the only one that could just say, thank God. Zelda's dead. Yeah. But she she said, I want her to die before she died. Is that healthy? Sometimes. But I didn't get that reading of Rachel, though. I thought Rachel was more disconnected from things. Eventually, yeah. Eventually, probably because society said, hey, that's not cool to run outside and say, thank God she's finally dead. 
Yeah, I mean, it's like she she learns to repress it because yeah, in her conversations with Lewis, she uh, about the cat, like yeah, she's the one, and the pet cemetery, she's right. the one that's like, I don't, re- I'm not really comfortable with Ellie learning about death right now. So she seems more repressed mm-hmm. than Lewis at that point. Over time, people just tell you that you don't talk about death, you don't talk about those moments when, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of glad it's over. And the men haven't learned that because, again, they're in this silly protector role where they think that they're going to, you know, take care of everybody. And I think it does more damage than good. Yeah. It's not just a protector role. It's a creator role. Which right. gets us to Frankenstein. Frankenstein, <laughs> which I know Liz wanted to talk about. But when you, the, the stony ground thing and this lineage of men who just want to deny death and create life. I mean, that is... Mm-hmm. You know, who is it? Timmy or his, uh, Timmy's father, I guess, mm-hmm. and then Judd, and then Lewis. They're all trying to defy death and create life. You sent actually a really good article. It's the one called Sour Ground. It's by Kevin Corstefine. Yeah, I liked that it set it up about like, well, yeah, it's about Frankenstein, but it's also bringing in elements of the Wendigo. And the more I thought about the Wendigo, I thought, yeah, it's probably more about that because it is pulling upon a lot of sort of Native American mythology. And I would say in a really sort of non-productive way, uh, the way Native Americans are depicted in this film, I thought was not good. But I thought it's really problematic to say, hey, we have this space and it's infused by, you know, Native American lore and all of us white people are going to come and we're going to take from it. And then we're going to be upset because it gave us what we wanted. And there's no sort of respect for the mythology. There's no sort of respect for sort of the history of the area. Yeah. And I'll give it just you that. But they also light. made a conscious effort, too, to say that the Native Americans were like, yeah, no, this, this isn't working. We're not even going to use this anymore. So they were smarter. But why, would, why did it have to be like a Native American burial ground? Why did it have to be that that sort of conveys the power that allows, you know, the chain of events to occur? You got me on that one. <laughs> Well, it's just been such a helpful motif in horror film. I mean, yeah. obviously Poltergeist was, what, yeah, seven years before this. It worked for Poltergeist. <laughs> well, and I think that our culture is just not comfortable with mysticism. So we have to bring in other cultures because we don't have a very authentic culture. And I think that in some of these circumstances, yeah, they just borrowed from people that were smarter and more open and thought a little bit more outside of the box. Well, the article that I referenced, it does say that there's a quote from it. It says, um, King is not just using the Native American theme as a device for introducing the supernatural, but plants an awareness of genuine political issues in the mind of the reader from the start. And I was wondering if you guys agreed with that. Well, that I didn't see that so much in the film, but I was kind of struck by, I mean, this article was interesting to me because it's clear that in the novel, King had actually brought up the political conflict between uh, the Mi'kmaq tribe and the federal government. Kevin Korsterfeen mentions this, that I guess Judd in the novel tells the family that, you know, don't worry, no one's going to be building over there. 
because the Mi'kmaq Indian tribe has laid claim to nearly 8,000 acres. I guess that's in the novel. And there was a complicated litigation going on, and I guess that was actually happening, like, in real life, and King kind of wove it into the novel. And the tribe did get money from the government, and they were able to repurchase the land. So there's that political conflict that works its way into the novel, and I think that seems really interesting. Now I'm going to have to read the novel, because that, yeah, know, it's a totally I mean, different context. Yeah. yeah, because that isn't in the film at all. You don't get the sense that the Mi'kmaq Indian tribe is still there, you know, and in a political conflict with the government trying to get back land that was taken away from them. It's just like the Mi'kmaq Indians were here, now they're gone. Like, they're an absence in the film. And yeah, I guess that is a little bit problematic. They're an absence so the creeds can come in and take from them, like you said. It's sort of a form of colonization. But we should probably talk about the characters, because I know you like to do that. I do enjoy that. So which character do you want to start with? Judd. Fred Gwynn, who was amazing. Yeah, I think that was the perfect pick. I think that this film would not have been what it was had it not been for Mary Lambert. Because yeah. I know that she really pushed for him to be in that film, too. Because I, I think that people yeah. thought that, that the public couldn't divorce him from the monsters. Yeah. I never even freaking thought of the monsters when I saw him in this film. And I loved the monsters, but this he was the perfect pick for me. You said he's. you think he's the most interesting character besides Zelda? Because yeah. I definitely... Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he seems so friendly and welcoming to the Creed's. But at the same time, like, he's pulling them in. I'm interested in thinking about this film as folk horror, which always sort of involves this clash of, like, the locals who are always hostile, even violent, and then newcomers who come in and suffer from that hostility and violence. But it's interesting that you say that. Because he is like the person that introduces them to this Pandora's box of death. This Pandora's box of secrecy. He almost pushes Lewis into it. He does. And in the very, very first time they go to the pet cemetery, first of all, hey, welcome to the neighborhood. Let me show you the pet cemetery. (laughs) Let's just check that out. And then, too, when it comes to to burying people for the first couple times or going to the pet cemetery, he's all he says is, I've got my reasons. He doesn't really unpack that. So I think that really does fit into what so you're what talking about. So what are his reasons? I mean, he's kind of an tell. enigmatic character. Yeah. Like, welcoming and supportive. But yeah, he pulls him in, and it's almost like he knows church is going to die. So oh, yeah. there's almost like this sort of sense of that he has this knowledge he shouldn't have as a human. Did you ever question his culpability in the cat's death? Because we don't see that no. happen. It just appears after he's been giving sort of warning yeah. after warning. No, Liz, don't let me think that Judd killed the cat. <laughs> I think Judd killed the no. cat. <laughs> I'm done. I think there is sort of a menacing undertone. I'm sorry. I know it's Fred Gwynn, but... He's menacing, but I, I can't take him killing church. But it's what hooks Lewis, right? It is. Um, it certainly is. I mean, now I'm wondering if there's a way you can read the whole picnic scene. Did Judd do anything to distract them so that... Gage would go toddling off after the kite string. Isn't he the one who gets Lewis's attention? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is the one who first says, don't let him get too close to the road. But it's already too late. I mean, Lewis runs as fast as a human can run, and it's too late. So maybe Judd waits just that little bit too long to point out that Gage is heading to the road. And he really but- does go out of his way to kind of create a wedge. Judd goes out of his way to create a wedge between Lewis and Rachel. So when Church dies, he takes him up to the burial ground. He says, okay, I'm going to show you this super secret thing. You can't tell anyone. 
So now Judd becomes more important than even that relationship between husband and wife, mm-hmm. too. Oh, yeah. Which right. makes him a little bit nefarious. So why? Okay, like now I'm becoming convinced that Judd is evil. Okay. My favorite character. Lovely Sorry, old guys. man. Uh, he's evil. What does everyone think? We'd like to hear. But why? Like, why is he... Why? Why would he do this? I wonder if the answer sort of resides in his, like, quote-unquote origin story with his own experience with the dog. He made it a point to say, but the dog wasn't vicious toward me. Hmm. It's just vicious toward everyone else. And I thought there might be something there. When Gage comes back, Gage is ready to kill everybody. Yeah. So why did this vicious return being have Hmm. an okay relationship with Judd? Because he's Satan. That's why. (laughs) But again. he gets along okay with people who come back from hell. People are so not going to agree with us on any of it. The film is, and and I'm not man bashing, but the film is constantly about men lying. Right. And it's about lie to your daughter that her, her cat died. Lie to your wife that we're going to this burial ground. Just lie about everything. And I don't understand where that comes from. Maybe it's just this is men's business. And it's it's a mindset. Well, I mean, I think one of the interesting ways to read this through Frankenstein is, I mean, Frankenstein has been read as being kind of, the, the novel in particular, as being about men's kind of envy of women's reproductive power and all of that. And so hence the need to create uh, on their own. I mean, it's always, it's always a dangerous kind of creation. It obviously fails. It's destructive. But they do it because of a kind of, I mean, there are readings of Frankenstein that it's not just about envy of women, but hatred of women. And I suppose you could read Pet Cemetery that way, too. So, okay, well, that's Judd, I guess. That's Judd. Um, <laughs> I, th- I think we talked about Lewis and Rachel. Pascal. Yes, I Who? agree with you. Pascal. Oh, Pascal. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Pascal, Which like almost, the philosopher. He almost yeah. falls into the feminine for me. Mm-hmm. So you yeah. have these women, so you have Rachel, yeah. especially as a child, and you have Ellie, who is this kind of all-seeing, all-knowing with her dreams and her understandings of what's going on and truth. Mm-hmm. And then you have Pascal, the only man that seems to speak truth, who just continuously seems yeah. to try and lead people yeah. to the light. And in, yeah. in the documentary, he tries, like the actor himself was talking about how he saw himself as an angel. As an angel. And he put pictures of angels on the front of his script. And if I remember rightly, I think the, the documentary shows us two of them, and they're both women. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of, in thinking of himself as an angel, he's almost a kind of feminine character. But I guess I'm, I'm curious what you guys think about what his presence does to the horror elements, because it seems like such a a foreign character to the story. Like, he's so on the periphery, and he serves a purpose in a way, but it's a purpose that could also be served by the daughter and her visions. Yeah. So I was unclear why that character was even needed. I mean, it facilitates the action in the beginning, because, you know, Lewis can't save him, and he has this sort of first otherworldly warning, like, do not do what you're about to do. But beyond that, the character didn't work for me. I thought it was a little cheesy, too. I mean, the main plot, the the main part of the narrative he drives is getting Rachel to go back at the end. I'm not sure she would have gone back on Ellie's word alone. He's just a, a bit of a twist for me. First of all, like, he's completely covered in brain drama right. and yeah. gore. But, however, he never seems horrifying. He seems like this comforting piece, this thread that kind of 
weaves through the narrative, this the red thread that kind of carries us through. And should you choose to take this path, you'll be led to the right. Ellie listens to him. Rachel listens to him. Lewis does not. He's like this moral authority throughout. And he's he's the good because, hey, you know what? You tried to do right by me. I'm trying to do right by you. It's up to you if you take this advice. And so I, I liked having him. And I thought it was interesting that he was the most probably physically grotesque person outside of maybe Zelda. That was this normalizing moral factor throughout the film. He's also an interesting figure in that he he shows that there's life after death, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, this isn't a bleak movie, and I read something by Jeffrey Weinstock. This film where Weinstock is saying that it's actually kind of somewhat of an optimistic film in that it, it does show that there's life after death, though he only really talks about Gage and Rachel and... That is not a pleasant view of life after death. And I'm not even sure that that's Rachel and Gage when they come back. Um, they seem to be something else. But Pascal shows us that you die, you die naturally, then you actually do have an existence after death. So Lewis, Lewis kind of ruins that for Gage and Rachel, right? I mean, he turns them that's into true. these bastardized, zombie-like, living, soulless corpses. When I like... With Pascal, for me, too, it kind of just drives home that it's there's free will. There's always yeah. literally a path to there's choose. A choice. Yes. Yeah, there's a and choice. it's not about predetermination, so it kind of rejects some of that notion. And, and you yeah. know, in that case, sometimes it's, hey, are you going to follow this physical path to the pet cemetery? Yeah. But more so, yeah. are you going to just take that road or not? That's That's a great point. And it's important because otherwise, like the film, and people have talked about the film as being about fate. And I think the road with the trucks thundering down it inexorably, the path to the cemetery, they all sort of push towards there is no choice. What's going to happen is going to happen. But Pascal offers choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess I struggle with how Rachel comes back into the scene because she was safe. Uh, she and Ellie are safe. Yeah. But then she... Her family is safe. So you just the told two me of them her are. parents are safe because they sounded pretty repressive. Which parents? Rachel's parents. <laughs> well, there's, there's dangerous and there's dangerous. Like... Physically safe. <laughs> I think emotionally there's some question as to whether or not they should be the ones raising Ellie for sure, especially given the treatment of their daughter. Just this idea of bringing... Rachel back into the mix so that Judd can have a choice of whether or not to follow a moral path or to continue on the path he's already going down, I think uses her in a way that's unfair to the character. But it almost tried Mm. to put her in a protector role. I'm going to go back and save things. Like, I need to go back and take care of things. And she does. You know what? Mm. It just, she's like Halloran in The Shining. Like, I remember, I remember oh. watching The Shining, and, you know, Danny calls out. And then, you know, Halloran makes this long trip. Like, don't you see, like, planes and buses yeah. and mm-hmm. cars and snowplows? And then he's killed, um, like, <laughs> when he gets there. And that's so devastating. <laughs> and the same kind of thing happens to Rachel. Yeah. I, I don't know what that means exactly. But it does mean she's trying, like Halloran was in The Shining, to, to be a kind of protector figure. So, Zelda... Zelda is by far my favorite horror anything ever. That's kind of crazy. Yeah, I, so. she, <laughs> Zelda is my She's favorite on screen character. She's for like two minutes. Yeah, total. But Zelda is my favorite character because I think that they just really depict Zelda as physically grotesque. Yeah. And it, it's gut-wrenching. 
Like, I don't think I've ever seen... It's not just physically gross. It's not like this is just a repulsive figure. Like, I don't think I could live with you as an 8-year-old or a 10-year-old and and handle what you are and haunting me and knowing that you're in that back bedroom and I don't know if I can talk about you and it's going to ruin me for the rest of my life. And I think that, that Zelda is by far the most creative character I've ever seen and I love that it's played by a man I love that it's played by a man I think that was a great choice but it's just this twisted soup sucking horrific being that just perverts everybody's understanding of life and death in the whole entire film it is I mean I remember watching this film like a long 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 time ago and the Zelda scene stuck with me I mean mostly because I just found it incredibly disturbing and not in the least bit pleasant, which kind of supports what you're saying. And she's not a monster. Yeah. She's just she, a well, that's human why being. She's so disturbing. That it's, has spina bifida. Too close. Like, spinal or spinal meningitis. meningitis. Yeah, I'm sorry. But again, I think, you know, and I, I wrote about it in one of the posts on Horror Homeroom. Yep. Yep. Just think that there's something about that character, especially the dynamic between Rachel and Zelda, that is so pure that I don't think that a lot of people can wrap their brains around. Because these are the feelings that people actually have, and they were verbalized, and it's so taboo. To me, this is so much more taboo than killing Gage. To just say, mm. this is a horrible thing, and I hate it. I hate my sister. I wish she was dead. Thank God she did die, and I'm free. And that's the purest thing I've ever think I've ever seen in a horror film, or any film. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think... I think so much of the weight of the film seems to be about someone I love has died. Should I bring them back? What are they going to be when they come back? I don't care what they're going to be because my desire is going to drive me to bring them back anyway. And and Zelda is kind of the reverse. Like you said, it's like, this is a supposed loved one, and I wish she were dead. So it's the opposite emotional sort of thrust of the rest of the film. And it is more disturbing. And it's it's yeah. not untrue. Like, people just don't like to talk about that stuff. And maybe that's what makes it so horrific. Because you're just not supposed to talk about it. It doesn't mean that Zelda's not loved. It doesn't mean that Zelda's not valued. And I know that you like to talk about otherness and, and, and whatnot. But, like, Zelda is valued. But something... I don't, she's not well, valued or she's loved. Valued. No, I no, think that maybe same. considering the time period that this was going on, the parents were scared of her. I think that Rachel was very, very pure. I don't think Rachel was trying to hide her. I think that Rachel was a victim of circumstance. And I think that, you know what? Sometimes it's okay to say, it's really hard to take care of somebody. I think you're giving them way too much credit, to be honest with you. I really do, because she was definitely kept in the back room like a dirty little secret. By the parents. (laughs) By the parents, but... Rachel did sort of adopt some of her parents' views. But she hated that she was in a back bedroom. Yes and no. She also didn't want to have to be the one feeding her soup. She found it disgusting again. Have you been a caretaker? Because it's horrific. I have. So I do have sympathy for her. And I do have sympathy for the fact that, you know, she's a child put into this situation. So that's where, for me... makes her parents more horrific. Yeah, 100%. And that's where, like, my empathy comes from. But I think... So there's two levels that this is working on, right? So, like, you watch the movie as a child, and you're going to see the way she eats the soup. You're going to see her spine. And that, to me, is problematic because a child or somebody who's maybe not thinking about, like, the real implications of disability is going to look at that and say, that's horrifying. I'm going to respond to the repulsiveness of your body. What if you always knew that? 
I'm pretty sure that was my reaction when I watched it. It was definitely oh, my yeah. reaction as yeah. a kid because I Mine, didn't know yeah. what was going on. You but know? Rachel's younger than Zelda, so that's all she, Rachel's ever known. Right, but I'm saying like from a viewer experience. Okay. So okay. having that experience versus now, like when I'm watching it, I have tremendous empathy for Zelda. And I'm like, how yeah. did I ever construe her as, yeah, a, monster? as a monster? Like yeah. the people around her are acting monstrous, but I don't think she's the monster. And so I think it's interesting how that flips based upon your perspective and sort of, you know, how you learn things as you get older. So what do you make when later you get the the scene of Zelda sort of tormenting or like the image of Zelda yeah. tormenting Rachel? Well, that's in it's in Rachel's head, right? Mm-hmm. I think that that's just kind of everybody saying, "Hey, guess what? You're not supposed to talk like that. You're not supposed to be grateful that it's over. You're not supposed to put yourself first. You're not." That's that repression. So you so, think it's the repression as to why she's still viewing her sister as a monster, which is how we get back into this horrible conundrum with everybody lying and 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 keeping secrets about death. Because nobody can handle it, even though it's a it, it's an ugly truth of life yeah. that things are diseased and they're they're sick and they die and we we beat that out of people and and it's almost as if Zelda acts you know later on in life as that repressive force saying guess what I'm gonna beat that out of you you were wrong you shouldn't have ever had those thoughts you shouldn't have had those feelings you're not entitled to it so now you're gonna act like these other stony hearted men yeah in a way that that ties Zelda to Gage and to Rachel at the end when she comes back from the dead, sort of as monster figures in that sense of repression. Like they all represent the way in which we want to deny disease and illness and death. And the fact that they all sort of exist in this monstrous form is shows the depths of our desire to deny all of that, actually. Because I have, you know, I've, I've wondered sometimes why is Zelda in there? Because honestly, Rachel doesn't seem to learn anything from her experience as a child. But maybe Zelda's there to kind of be in a kind of connection with Gage and the dead Rachel. They're all about what we won't look at. And it looks ugly on the surface. But that's kind of our ugliness, for not accepting it. I agree. And yeah. they tried to reel that in right away. Like when she talked about running outside and saying she's dead, she's dead, she's dead. Some people thought she was crying. She said, but I think I was actually laughing. I think yeah. she understood in that moment. In that moment. It is not it, yeah. acceptable to have the feelings that I'm having. Yeah. And I think the rest of the film speaks to that. That it's all about push it down, pack it up, stick it in a cabinet. Yeah. Well, I do like the film sort of takes both sides of that, like the why it's problematic to sort of suppress your emotions. But then you also have like Gage's funeral scene and the violence that erupts there. What happens when you don't put a lid on it? Yeah. So either extreme really is an interesting take on grief. Yeah. Though I wonder if um, I mean, you're right. Certainly there's anger flowing there, but it's. I mean, Rachel's father is angry at Lewis. So maybe we can see that as just another form of denial of of death. Like, he's blaming his son-in-law. Like, it's all your fault. I also just love, let's just back this up a little bit, that Rachel's father is trying to be the freaking moral authority for Lewis. Yeah, he gave that up a while ago. (laughs) Like, hey, you're a bad parent. Right. Yeah. And knowing what we know about him and Zelda, again, this is where Zelda is so important, knowing how you treated her and shoved her in a back bedroom and never told anybody about her, and you're giving the parenting advice? You're going to come to this funeral and tell me I'm a bad parent, that you knew it from the start? Come on now. 
That's a joke. Mm-hmm. So I what mean, other, I, you wanted to talk about folklore. I'm really curious to hear what you have to well, say yeah. about that. I, I mean, I mentioned a little bit of it, but I guess I I sort of thought about folklore in relation to the 1989 film because of the trailer for the remake, which we should talk about briefly, or at least alert people that that's coming out. I think it's April the 5th. A couple of things about the remake. It's filmed in Canada, which Stephen King did not want for the 1989 version. And so I'm not happy about that or it it doesn't bode well for the film. There's a scene in the trailer of these kids in masks like marching to the the pet cemetery and that kind of adds a sort of folk horror aspect to it like the kids are clearly involved in some sort of ritual that the creeds I guess will get drawn into in the remake of the film but yeah I, mean, I just think it, it's a pretty standard folk horror narrative where you know people come from what seems like a relatively urban area to a rural area there's sort of strange rites and rituals which the local Judd introduces them to and then there's there's sacrifice I mean mm-hmm. sacrifice is sort of huge and and maybe I mean maybe that ties back to our discussion of Judd as some sort of at the very best like ambiguous figure. You know maybe he's the one that's sort of pushing for some sort of sacrifice here. I don't know why, but yeah, I it's it's kind of an American version of of folk horror with the the Native American beliefs, values, rituals kind of at the center of it. That makes me want to see the remake more, much more yeah. than I wanted to. I do not. You don't want to see the remake? Like it's granted, John granted, the, what? Ki- the kids in masks are, they make me feel super Peter Panny. There's nothing Peter Panny. Oh, those Lost those Boys in- are super dark and and unruly and anarchistic and, however, and they don't wear masks, I don't think. No, no, but they dress like foxes. Again, I will say this as I've said it before. Four, I do not agree <laughs> with the casting of the cat. Oh, God, not the cat. Please. I what? do not agree with the casting of the new cat in the trailer. So <laughs> you cast. cannot. Like, I think that Church was crucial to the plot in, in the original 1989 <laughs> film. So how is the new cat so, different from Church? He's not scary. He just looks like a dirty, wet cat. He but just looks you like might a dirty, be wet seeing the cat you before. Think Church looks scary? Yes, he's a British oh. short hair. Come on now. <laughs> like, that cat, and especially how they consciously went out of their way to flip the film so that it would re- reflect in his eyes, yeah. that cat was scary. There's so many memes online about that cat. When you look at the remake, it just looks like a, a wet mangoon. But you might be seeing the cat pre its resurrection. That's a dirty wet cat. Well, Whether it's pre or post resurrection. Yeah, it's just a dirty know. wet cat. So it might cat. be scarier He's not to even scary. her once it starts reflecting in their eyes again. You could have kept the British short hair. You're already taking Zelda back to a female actress. That yeah, upsets that's like yeah. way 15 more. 15 years yeah. old. No offense to the actress. I, I Well, let's keep an open mind. You're, you're, yeah, you're taking it away from a female director who was yeah. genius. I think she was I agree crucial to this film. And right. it was also a female that pushed for this film to be made. Mm-hmm. And I think that we're kind of whitewashing a lot of those things. And again, putting it in, into Canada, which was against what most people wanted. They wanted this to be in Maine. And I think that it was important that it was in Maine. I think that, you know, yeah. having the actors that were local was super important to the yeah. fi- the success of the film. And, and the cat. I'm just saying. The cat. The cat really bothers you. The cat <laughs> ridiculously bothers me. I watched the trailer before watching Pet Cemetery again. The 1989 version. I thought the cat was really scary in the trailer. This new one? Yeah, the new, I thought the new oh, cat God, was scary. Oh, God, he just looks like he's been out in the rain. I love that you guys are arguing over the cat <laughs> being scary. It makes me so I, happy. I think, you're, I, think you're just, <laughs> I think you're just reading it 
you're reading it through I'm having a hard a time. Lens. I'm um, letting I'm having a hard time letting go of church. But I think I'm the only one who's super excited that John Lithgow is playing. Dude, John. Harry and the Hendersons. Oh, you didn't see him in Dexter is, though. No, yeah, I, did see, I did so see him. I did see him in Dexter. I did see him in Dexter. And you and still say Harry and the Hendersons? Hendersons? It's kinda like the original argument for Fred Gwynn that nobody's gonna be able to divorce him from Munsters. I cannot divorce this cat from Harry and the Hendersons. It's still on Netflix. I'm just saying. Given his entire body of work, that's the movie you associate him with. Uh, duh. I don't even know what to do with that. I'm making a list of all of these things, and we really... <laughs> Harry and the Hendersons? No, not Harry and the Hendersons. I'm making I a list a of everything besides that. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> but... I think we need, we need to do we need to have a conversation about the remake after it's come out and kind of go point by point through some of these things and whether because we're just judging on the trailer right. But now. it's going to be an hour of going complaining about the cat. It, just it so will you be. know, that's what's going to be. be and Harry and the Hendersons. And Harry and Hendersons. <laughs> well, we'll let you say a couple of things about the cat, and then <laughs> you're forbidden from saying anything else after that. And Harry and the Hendersons. And Harry no, and the Hendersons. I'm not writing that down. <laughs> Keep that audio. I'm not writing that yeah. down. There was something, and I can't remember where I read it, but it was comparing how children die in Stephen King's books, and it specifically mm-hmm. compared this film against Stand By Me, which I personally think oh is the God. best that, Stephen that was, King That was film Jeffrey Weinstock's article. Was yeah. that the one? Yeah. Amazing okay. book. And it says that they think that this film is the more optimistic yeah. view of yeah. death. and Because there's life after death. Right, and just the whole um, symbolism of seeing the shoe. Yeah. No. No? Rather than the body. Like, you see the body in Stand By Me. I guess I get that, but to me, Stand By Me is a coming-of-age story. All about, we are living our life, we are having this adventure. Yes, we may be looking for the body, but it's more about the kids than the the body. It's this sense of adventure that we're going to continue on in the future, whereas, to me, Pet Cemetery is just all about repression and packing stuff down and keeping secrets and being unhealthy where I thought in the body, well, stand by me, it was so much more about living your life in pursuit of, in this case, it might have been finding that body, but it was still future focused. I would definitely agree with that, but I also wouldn't want to undersell the impact of them finding the body and sort of what that does, especially for the one character who's dealing with coming to terms with his own brother's death and the way his parents have treated him. But again, coming to terms with death dealing with death, which is something that's completely absent from Pet Cemetery. Nobody actually deals with it. That's very true. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. Do you guys think this is like one of the better Stephen King film yeah. adaptations? Yeah. Yeah. I mean yeah. that's that's an interesting thought. Like off the top of our head, what are favorite Stephen King adaptations? Mm. Definitely Stand By Me and Misery. Those are, I think, my top yes. two. I would put, yeah, the, the, with Pet Cemetery because I wholeheartedly love Pet Cemetery, no matter what. So I would put Misery, Stand By Me, and, and this, top three. This would and not be in my top ten. It wouldn't? Mm-mm. It might be in You're my, it might be in my <laughs> top five. I mean, I've got The Shining, Carrie, and The Mist. We'll have to talk about the, the I, adaptation on Netflix of The Mist at some point. Oh, it's bad. Oh, no, I love it. Do you really? This is the TV I, series? Yeah, the one that was on Netflix. Yes, yes, I did. Hmm. So we'll have to discuss that. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I agree with you about Stand By Me and Misery and then Shining Carrie the Mist. But I would I would actually put Pet Cemetery up there then. So it would be in my top 10. Be maybe in my top 20. Oh, there's It. I don't know. that. I like Pet Cemetery more than It. I, think. I do too. I do too, because I yeah. feel like It is less 
to me, it was less about the horror. It was more about the coming of age. I think Stephen King writes an ingenious coming of age story. I agree. He makes fantastic characters. He understands his subject. But to me, it was Mostly more boys. about yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I think for me, it was more about those boys than it actually was the horror. Yeah. I have to also put in a plug for the Salem's Lot. Um, from oh. when was that? The one with David Soul, also known as Hutch. That's a good one. Yeah, that was a good one. At Pupil is really good, too. Oh, that's a good one. I'm saying. We should probably... Some of our recommendations. <laughs> we, should, we should make a list, maybe, of, we should. of our favorite Stephen King adaptations, which probably wouldn't differ too much from other people's. So we were talking about how to end this, and we thought, since there's so many cool things happening in horror, that we would each give a recommendation for something that people should check out. So let's start with Gwen. What do you think the good people should be looking at or watching or reading? Completely unrelated. It can be related. It can be whatever well, you want it to be. Well, tangentially related. Okay. Serial Mom. I'm just on a Serial Mom thing right now. Is that the film? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's an amazing film. And I More think comedy that, horror. Yeah. I, I love, love comedy it. horror. Yeah, so for good. me, everything's 80s, you know, whatnot. But... I I love camp with my horror, and I think that if you're going to watch something really, really good, if you want to laugh, if you want to kind of cringe, if you want to make your friends cringe, you should watch Serial Mom. That's my recommendation. I would co-sign that, and we don't agree on much, but I would agree on that. (laughs) Good. That's good. Uh, Well, I I would recommend something that's on Netflix that came on Netflix last summer. I totally missed it. I don't know why. I watched it just a couple of weeks ago. Caliber. I'm planning on writing about it, so watch the site for something on that. It's a British film about two men who go hunting up in the Scottish Highlands. And it's Ooh. kind of like, it, it's it's a mixture of two genres. It's like, it's one of those films like I Know What You Did Last Summer. Mm-hmm. You know, people go off, do something, everything's fun, and something really bad happens, <laughs> and everyone starts making really bad choices. <laughs> It's that combined with folk horror. So, yeah, very, very, very interesting film. And I actually, I actually watched it because Stephen King recommended it. Like, I just saw some tweet where he, he is, gives amazing recommendations. Yeah, he does. He seems to watch and read things constantly. He put this on like his top ten list or something in some tweet I just happened to see. So it's like if it's in Stephen King's top ten for 2018, I should watch it. And definitely worth it. I feel like probably most people have watched this, but if you're like me and have heard about it and just didn't get around to it, Sharp Objects is so, so good. It's got this really sort of cool gothic sensibility to it. And it's very sort of in the vein of Eve's by These characters just stay with you, even though you don't want them to. Hmm. And I actually marathoned it with my grandmother, of all people, who wow. hates horror. <laughs> but she was, like, into this. Yeah. Um, so it's eight episodes. Did it in one day. It's amazing. So if you guys haven't checked it out, definitely do that. And on that note, thanks for listening, guys. And uh, check out Horror Homeroom for more posts and horror goodness. Bye. Bye. Bye.